Please be advised, this episode mentions topics of sexual violence that might be triggering to some listeners, and it's definitely not suitable for kids. The Great American Highways have been a source of inspiration for many writers, artists, and musicians over the decades. Take The Doors as an example. Jim Morrison famously sang, There's a killer on the road. And here lies your clue for today's countdown. We're going to take a look at real-life killers who took to the road and terrified and tortured their victims. By the time we get to number one on our list, you might think twice about your next road trip or rideshare. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 highway killers. When I hear highway killers, I gotta say so many horrible things come to my mind. Uh Uh-huh. First, I think of the real cases that involve these kinds of killers, like Ivan Milat from Australia immediately comes to my mind, because I think of Wolf Creek, which is a really horrifying movie, and it's loosely based on his crimes. I also think of like the Sunset Strip killers, William Bonin, etc., etc. No good things come to mind. No. I also think of the random killers who end up hitchhiking down a freeway just to find victims. The Hitcher and Joyride are perfect examples of films that, in my opinion, get it right when it comes to how truly dirty, terrifying, and desolate an open highway can really be. I just felt icky hearing that last sentence, but I do feel like those movies perfectly put you in that yucky zone. That grimy zone. For me, when I think about highway killers, I think about Ben Rose, John Allen Muhammad, and Lee Boyd Malvo. The thought of just like driving along the highway and being taken out is so scary because Mm -hmm. it's just another day-to-day activity that we as humans really just think nothing of. Like you get in your car, you hop on the highway, you take your exit. You're safe in your car. Bing, bang, boom. But the stories on this list will have you thinking twice. My number one is one of the most abhorrent cases in true crime, and it's going to leave you really, really unsettled. Oh, good. I can't wait. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Trust me. I have some entries on my side of the list that are definitely going to have you thinking twice about taking, like, a joyride later. But um, Elena has five highway killers, and so do I. But neither of us knows who will be on the other side of the list. Let's start the countdown. Ten. I'll start us off with number 10 on the countdown, Kai, the hatchet-wielding hitchhiker. In February 2013, a local news station in California was searching for a young hitchhiker with a hatchet who had saved two women from an attacker. When a reporter and cameraman from the station found the hitchhiker, they asked him what happened, and the hitchhiker gave them an expletive-ridden version of the story. When the news team asked the guy his name, he said it was Kai. When they followed up and asked him if he had a last name, he replied, nah, bro, I don't have anything. What? He's just being real. The video of Kai telling his heroic story went viral and quickly got 7 million views on YouTube. 
and he got the nickname Kai the Hatchet-Wielding Hitchhiker. I remember this. He even went on Jimmy Kimmel. I watched that. But three months later, Kai's celebrity status came crashing down when he was arrested for the murder of 73-year-old Joseph Galfi. He met Galfi in New York Times Square in May of that year. Galfi invited Kai to stay at his place, and that's when Kai murdered him. Kai claimed that Galfi tried to sexually assault him, and that's why he beat him to death. When Kai was in jail awaiting trial, he tried to keep his viral fame going by releasing recordings from custody. He even attempted to get his fans to help him with legal fees. Like, sir, you are in jail. Kai obviously did have a last name. His full name is Caleb McGilvery. And in 2019, when he was 30 years old, he was sentenced to 57 years in prison. Nine. At number nine this week is Alan Phillips. On a January night in 1982, Alan Lee Phillips got stuck in a snowdrift on a Colorado mountain. He used his car lights to send out an SOS, and soon a rescue team was on its way to save him. But he might not have been the innocent man people thought he was. A United Airlines flight to California happened to be flying overhead that night, and lucky for Phillips, a passenger spotted his call for help and quickly alerted the captain. It's like a movie. Yeah, that's wild. Rescuers made their way up a 10,000-foot mountain pass in sub-zero temperatures to save Phillips. They managed to rescue him, and the story made national headlines. And for close to 40 years, he managed to live a regular life. But that changed in 2021, when DNA pinned Phillips to the killings of two women, Barbara Jo Oberholzer and Annette Schnee. The killings took place in 1982, close to where Phillips had been rescued. He was rescued just a few hours after the women went missing and not far from where their bodies and belongings were found. That is so creepy. Can you imagine looking back 40 years ago and just being like, oh, I saved that man. Yeah. And had no idea. had no idea that only moments before. Right? Genetic genealogy using DNA found at the crime scenes pointed authorities to Alan Phillips. Turns out his DNA matched the blood that was found on a glove of Barbara Joe's, whose body was found a day after Philip's rescue. Annette Schnee's body was found six months after Philip's rescue. Both women were last seen around the same time, and both were said to have been separately hitchhiking home when they were allegedly abducted and shot to death. As of this recording, Alan Lee Phillips, who's now in his 70s, is being held without bond and is awaiting trial. That is insane. I've never heard of that story before. It's beyond your imagination. It sounds like a movie, a horror movie. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of highway killers is Nathaniel David Rowland. 21-year-old Samantha Josephson was just a few months shy of graduating from the University of South Carolina in political science. She planned to go to Drexel University on a full scholarship to study law. But after a night out with her friends, her dream of becoming a lawyer came to an abrupt end. On Thursday, March 28, 2019, Samantha Josephson went to Five Points in Columbia, South Carolina, an area that's popular with the university's students. At around 2 a.m., Samantha left the Bird Dog Bar and ordered an Uber. Just minutes after ordering the car, she got into what she thought was her driver's car. 
a black Chevrolet Impala. But the car Samantha got into wasn't her rideshare. All this was caught on surveillance camera. Here's the thing. I am a crazy person when it comes to like Ubers and Lyfts and all that. I actually have never been in one by myself. Oh, really? Never. Never wow. been in one by myself. I mean, I don't go anywhere, so that probably has a lot to do with it, everybody. Yeah, that's true. But like, I just, I have a real like thing with it. I think it's like, it's a little intimidating. I don't know if it's growing up like the age group or something, like the stranger danger thing. It just goes against everything in my like nervous system to get in a car with a stranger. I know it's it really does. Like, not something I can do. But I always make it a point. And I mean, I think this wasn't jammed into our heads enough when all this rideshare stuff started to look at that car and to not assume it's the right person to go in there and say, who are you here for? Right. And have them say your name. I know, because that's actually something I learned working in Boston, yeah. taking Ubers and Lyfts and so on and so forth. You don't go up and you say, oh, is this for Ashley? You yeah. say, who are you here for? Who are you here for? And it's not intuitive to do that. No, it's not. That's the thing. There's so many times where I've gotten into Ubers in the past and said, oh, for Ash? Yeah. And they're like, yes. And then it is for me. Because you just assume that, you know, you want to assume that there's not evil people in the world, but unfortunately there are. Well, and I think a lot of these crimes that have happened relating to rideshares have really woken people up about how for sure to go about it, which is sad that it takes that, you know, it is. Now, later that day, Samantha's body was found about 60 miles away from the bird dog bar. She had been stabbed more than 100 times. Wow. Around 3 a.m. on Saturday, March 30th, police spotted a car that matched the description of the car in the surveillance video. The car belonged to 24-year-old Nathaniel Rowland. In the car, police found Samantha's blood, along with her cell phone, a container of bleach, wipes, and cleaner. That's just terrifying. He's horrifying. The Columbia police chief at the time said that Roland activated the child safety locks on the car doors and windows that prevented Samantha from escaping. That is what nightmares That's are made a horror of. Movie. And at his trial, prosecutors argued that Nathaniel Roland, quote, had his eyes firmly fixed on Samantha when she left the bar to order her Uber. So he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. In 2021, Nathaniel Rowland was found guilty of kidnapping and murdering Samantha Josephson. He was sentenced to life in prison. And again, just one final thing, always check the license plates of your ride shares. Yes, and ride with a friend if you can. Yeah. Seven. At number seven is Jason Dalton. Uber driver Jason Dalton terrorized the Kalamazoo, Michigan area on the night of February 20th, 2016. In between picking up fares, he shot eight people, killing six. Do you remember this? I actually do remember this. So do I, yeah. As soon as you started saying it, I was like, oh, yeah. I, I feel about like that. this is kind of when I personally started really taking a mm -hmm. lot of Ubers, and this really terrified me. Yeah. Before Jason Dalton set off on his killing spree on February 20th, he stopped at a gun store where he bought a black jacket with pockets that were designed to conceal a gun. At around 4 p.m. that day, Dalton picked up Matt Mellon, who had requested an Uber. According to Mellon, Dalton started driving erratically after receiving a phone call. Mellon asked Dalton to stop the car, but he didn't. When he finally came to a stop, Mellon jumped out and called the police. At around 5.15 p.m., Dalton accepted another ride that would take him to an apartment complex, and that's where he shot his first victim, 25-year-old Tiana Carruthers. 
She was standing in a parking lot with her kids and was hit by four bullets. But she didn't die. Thankfully. After the shooting, Dalton drove to his parents' house where he swapped cars. He told his wife that he had been in an accident where a car had sideswiped him and then the driver shot at him. Oh, yeah. Just completely made up that story. That happens all the time. This is just an action movie all of a sudden. Between 8 p.m. and approximately 9.45 p.m., Dalton accepted more rides without incident. How scary is that? That's the scariest part. And imagine looking back on this and realizing that you were in his Uber in between all of this. But then, at 10.05 p.m., Dalton pulled into an auto dealership where he shot and killed Richard and Tyler Smith, a father and son. About 10 minutes later, Dalton drove into a Cracker Barrel parking lot where he approached two vehicles and shot at the people inside them. He killed four women and injured a 14-year-old girl. After these killings, Dalton continued to pick up passengers. One of his customers who had heard about the shootings jokingly said to Dalton, you're not the shooter, are you? Dalton replied, no. That's beyond. Beyond. You would see that in a horror film and be like, really? And be like, that's too much. Dalton was pulled over by police at 12.40 a.m. and arrested. He was wearing a ballistic vest and had a handgun in the back of his waistband. Dalton told police that a, quote, evil figure on his Uber app had taken control of his mind and body. Oh, stop it. Yeah, I bet. In January 2019, Jason Dalton pleaded guilty to six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. The following month, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. See ya. Bye. Also on our list at number six is Ivan Milat, a.k.a. the Backpack Killer. If you're familiar with the horror movie Wolf Creek, the one I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. you'll know it's about a psychopathic serial killer who hunts down and tortures motorists in the Australian outback. But what you might not know is that the movie is partly based on real events. Between 1992 and 1993, seven dead bodies were found in the Belangolo State Forest in New South Wales, Australia. The victims were aged between 19 and 22 and were tourists to the area, and they had all reportedly been hitchhiking. The bodies were all found face down with their arms behind their backs, covered with leaves and branches. Some had been brutally stabbed or shot. One had been decapitated. During the investigation into the killings, one particular local family caught the attention of police, the Malat family. Several of the 10 Malat brothers had known criminal histories. One of those brothers was Ivan Malat. He had previously been jailed for burglary in the 1960s, and in the 1970s, he had been tried for rape but was acquitted. The police arrested Ivan Milat in 1994, thanks to a British man who had had his own scary encounter with Milat. In 1990, Paul Onions had been hitchhiking in the Belangolo State Forest when he accepted a ride from a man. The driver started asking him weird questions like, quote, had he done any special forces training in the Navy? When they approached the state park, the driver stopped the car, pulled out a rope and gun and said, this is a robbery. The two men fought, and Onions managed to get away. He flagged down a car and escaped. Go Paul Onions. A bad B moment. The man with the gun and the rope was Ivan Milat. When Onions found out that Australian police were looking for a serial killer in the same area where he was picked up and attacked, he contacted them and eventually identified Milat as the man who had attacked him years earlier. 
Paul Onions. The police searched Malat's home where they found camping gear and other items belonging to the dead backpackers. And they found a picture of his girlfriend unknowingly wearing the shirt of one of the victims. Oh, yeah. He had given his girlfriend, like, clothing and items from the victims. Sick. And you'll see in a lot of these movies, like Wolf Creek, The Hitcher, you'll see it in, you know, Wrong Turn. We just covered it on Scream. We did. Where they'll find this big, like, you know, pile of keys or a pile of, like, trinkets. Yeah, just things like hiking boots for that are clearly just being collected. Wallets. That really happened. Oh, yeah. It's one of the scariest parts of those kind of horror movies. It's even worse when you realize that really happened. Am I making this up or did he try to like hide stuff in the wall? He sure did. Yeah. Yeah, he sure did. Now, Malat was found guilty of all seven deaths on July 27th, 1996. He received seven life sentences for the murders, as well as an additional term for attacking Paul Onions, Good. which he should. Ivan Malat died in October 2019. He was 74 years old, to which I say good, good riddance. riddance. When I first saw that this was going to be a topic, mm. Ivan Milat, I said it before, was the first thing that popped in my mind. So when I saw him on my side, I was like, yep. He definitely popped in in my mind, but I'm very surprised at how high up he is on this list and very nervous for where we're headed. Yeah, if he's not even in the top five, right? what's happening? What is going on here? I don't know, but I'm scared. I definitely have some scary fellas. Hi, I'm Christine Schiefer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism and more and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches, who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of highway killers. Starting off the second half of our list are the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders. The Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders took place in Sonoma County, California between 1972 and 1973. Seven female hitchhikers were killed and to this day, their murders remain unsolved. But a couple of notorious serial killers have made the suspect list. The murders began on February 4, 1972. The first two victims were also friends, Yvonne Weber and Maureen Sterling. The two were only 13 years old. Babies. One of their mothers had dropped the girls off at the Redwood Empire Ice Arena at 7.30 p.m. When she went to pick them up at 11 p.m., they were gone. The girls were last seen thumbing a lift on a road northwest of their town. Their remains weren't found until December 26th of that year, 10 months later. Yeah. A month after Yvonne and Maureen disappeared, 19-year-old Kim Allen's body was found strangled in a creek. Four more women would eventually be found. 
The oldest victim was only 23 years old. That's horrifying. In 1975, a sheriff with Sonoma County issued a report that linked the murders to the Zodiac Killer. To help corroborate his story, another law enforcement official said that the killer was leaving a trail of victims that formed the letter Z. Huh. Ted Bundy, yes, the Ted Bundy, was at one time also a suspect because of the way the young women and girls were killed. The murders were identical to his killings, rape, strangulation, and then dumping the bodies near roadsides. But he was eventually crossed off the suspect list because he had credit card records suggesting that he was out of state at the time of these murders. Before Bundy was executed in 1989, he did confess to raping and killing at least 28 women, but didn't mention anything about the Santa Rosa murders. But as we said at the top, the Santa Rosa hitchhiker murders are still unsolved. That's always the worst when you end that way. Makes you so mad. Four. Landing at number four this week is Patrick Kearney, also known as the trash bag killer. Patrick Kearney has been described as a, quote, slight unassuming man. But that unassuming man was known for killing young men who he found along California's highways. It's thought that he might have murdered at least 43 people before he was arrested. Patrick Kearney was born in September 1939. He was reportedly bullied at school for being scrawny. His max height as an adult was five feet, four inches. When he was a kid, his dad showed him how to kill pigs by shooting them behind the ears. Patrick reportedly liked rolling around in the pig's intestines. And should have been brought to a therapist directly after that. Just kid things. He killed his first victim in 1962. He convinced a 19-year-old to ride on his motorbike to a remote area, and that's where Kearney murdered him. Kearney killed several more men before moving in with his partner, David Hill. When the couple argued, Kearney was known to go on long drives and pick up young male hitchhikers, or he would pick them up at gay bars. He would then drive his victims to a remote area where he was known to inflict torture on them. Kearney would then mutilate and dismember the remains before putting them in a trash bag and dumping them. Kearney's killing spree came to an end in 1977. Police were able to connect body parts they found along freeways to Kearney. One of those remains belonged to John LeMay, who before disappearing was connected to Kearney's partner. Police found Kearney's hair on the trash bag that LeMay's body was dumped in. The police put out an arrest warrant for Kearney and Hill. The couple turned themselves in. After his arrest, Kearney eventually confessed to 35 murders. Many of the victims were teenagers or in their 20s. They were either white or Mexican-American. It's reported that Kearney's youngest victim was just five years old. Oh my God. Patrick Kearney was sentenced to life in prison. And as of this recording, Kearney, who is now in his 80s, is still serving time in Mule Creek State Prison in California. Exactly where he belongs. Forever and always. Number three on our countdown of highway killers is Ed Kemper, also known as the co-ed butcher. Ed Kemper is probably one of the most well-known serial killers in the United States. His story in part inspired the character Buffalo Bill in the film Silence of the Lambs. 
When he was just 15 years old, Ed Kemper killed his grandparents. He said he did it to, quote, see what it felt like. That's a big red flag. Yeah, mega. That big, is like big, big. That's actually the red flag. When you have absolutely no reason whatsoever, except I just want to know what it feels like. Yeah, that's even scarier yeah. than like Billy's motive. It's always scarier with no motive. It is. He was soon handed over to the California Youth Authority, where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and eventually sent to a maximum security facility for mentally ill convicts. He was released in 1969 at the age of 21, and his nickname was Big Ed because he was six foot nine inches and weighed around 300 pounds. My goodness. An actual tank. He's a big boy. Yeah. Around 1971, he got a job with the highway department, which is terrifying, but he got hit by a car and was unable to work. So he decided to take up driving and murder as a hobby. The latter is not a good hobby. Nope, definitely not. Nope. The former, sure. When he was out driving, he noticed a lot of female hitchhikers on the roads, so he started giving them rides. He tended to pick up women close to the college campus where his mom worked. It's been reported that he actually picked up 100 women without killing them, like a practice period. These are the ones that scare me so much because we've had a couple of these where they pick up a bunch of people before actually doing it, and I can't. Yeah. Like, imagine looking back and being like, Oh, yeah, I was just lucky. Like I was one of those people. Yeah. Oh, I can't. I truly can't imagine. So in 1972, 18-year-olds Marianne Pesh and Anita Lukeser weren't one of the lucky 100. Kemper picked them up, drove them to a wooded area where he stabbed them to death. Between 1972 and 1973, Kemper picked up and killed six students. His last two murders took place on April 20th, 1973. That night, while she was sleeping, he murdered his mom, who he said he had been having, quote, horrendous battles with. After he killed his mom, he invited one of her best friends over to the house and uh, strangled her to death. My God. Now, Kemper eventually confessed to all eight murders and was convicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. As of this recording, he's currently serving time at the California Medical Facility Prison in Solano County. When Kemper was later asked what he thought about when he saw a girl, he said, quote, One side of me says, wow, what an attractive chick. I'd like to talk to her, date her. The other side of me says, I wonder how her head would look like on a stick. That is one of the scariest statements I have ever heard uttered on film or in reality. It's just like wild that he's like, one side of me is like, oh, what a cool chick. And the other side wants to kill her. And put her head on a stick. Yeah, I can't. Ed Kemper will never cease to amaze me I was, in a bad way. I was waiting for Ed Kemper to show up on this countdown because oh, yeah. I didn't have him. And I was like, Ash has to have him. Mm -hmm. he, when you think highway killers, you got to think about him. Numero uno, in my yeah. opinion. But I mean, Ivan Milat, all those for sure. But yeah. Ed Kemper's got to be on the list just because of the way he picked people up. That's what he did. Yeah, exactly. So scary. I'm also kind of waiting for one. So I'm interested to see if it's your number two. I'm actually waiting for one as well. And I'm simultaneously hoping it's your number one and also not hoping it's your number one. So I don't have to hear about it again. It's my number one. I can guarantee <laughs> oh, you that. No. Yeah. Here we go.
two. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of highway killers. At number two are Cameron and Janice Hooker. On May 19, 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan decided to hitchhike to a friend's birthday party. She needed to get from her home in Eugene, Oregon, to Northern California, a 400-mile journey. That is a long ways to go. That night, a couple pulled over in a van and offered Colleen a ride. She considered them to be safe because they had a baby with them. Yeah, wild to me that they had a baby with them and continued to do the things that were done to her. They had a baby with them. Yeah. Of course you would think that's safe. Absolutely. Well, this couple was Cameron and Janice Hooker. 30 minutes into the journey, Cameron Hooker pulled into a dirt road and threatened Colleen with a knife. He then bound and gagged her and placed a 20-pound wooden box over her head. That he had crafted himself for this. Specifically for this. I was just going to say for this very purpose. The hookers then drove Colleen to their home in Red Bluff, California, which is about two hours north of Sacramento. That's a long time. You just have no idea what's going to happen to you. And she's just sitting there with a box over her head. And again, we're in California. She is like sweating. She's hot. She's disoriented. She's probably going to pass out. Cameron told Colleen that if she tried to escape, an organization known as The Company would hurt her family. And he didn't even just tell her that. He had, like, pamphlets to go along with it. Oh, yeah, he went the distance Mm -hmm. with it. The hookers predominantly kept Colleen in a wooden box underneath their bed. Colleen was often chained up for 23 hours a day to a coffin-like box. Cameron beat, burned, and raped Colleen and gave her limited food and water. Pure hell pure hell. It's like past hell. It even gets worse. Colleen has said of that time, quote, I was stretched on racks, electrocuted, whipped until I bled, and tied up by my wrists and left to hang for hours on end. Oh my gosh. That's unfathomable. No. It truly is. You think about like raising your hand in class for too long and how that hurts and you're like, I got to put my hand down. You would sit there and hold your elbow with the other hand when you wouldn't get the answer. You're like, come on, man, just answer. Like that, but hours and hours Mm -hmm. for years. And in a terrifying state. Cameron and Janice would sometimes let Colleen go out in public with them and even led people to believe that Colleen was their housekeeper. These are like the sickest people alive. They are. In 1981, the hookers let Colleen see her family, but she was so brainwashed by them, she told her family she was okay. Her parents thought she had joined a cult. In 1984, after seven years of being chained up and abused, Colleen managed to escape with help from Janice. And if you, there's like a bunch of books written on this. I read a really good one. I can't think of the title, but just like getting to this point in the story where Janice kind of turns is really crazy. It's very unsettling in every way. It is. And Janice pretty much got away with this. That's horrific. In exchange for immunity, Janice testified against Cameron at his trial. There you go. On November 22nd, 1985, Cameron Hooker was found guilty of kidnapping, sodomy, and rape. He was sentenced to 104 years in prison. Which isn't even enough. In 2009, Colleen wrote a book called The Simple Gifts of Life. In the book, she writes about her ordeal and what she learned from it. One of the lessons was, quote, don't hitchhike. And isn't that the lesson we're all learning today? Yes.
one. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 highway killers, the toolbox killers. Oh, I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. This is a doozy. Oy. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris got the nickname the Toolbox Killers because of the types of implements they used to torture their victims. Ice picks, pliers, and screwdrivers. From June 1979 until October 1979, the two men preyed on Californian teenage girls. Lawrence Bittaker was born in Pennsylvania in 1940. He reportedly had an IQ of 138 and was allegedly the so-called brains of the duo. Roy Norris was born in Colorado in 1948, and he was known as the Muscle. I always feel like these kind of people, I say people very loosely, yeah. are not actually born. Like whenever you hear like, they were born, I'm like, they weren't babies. I know, you're like, somebody they was were just, excited for this. They were just spat out of some like horrible hellscape and onto this earth. They were, they were not born. out of purgatory. Yeah. Now, both men reportedly had abandonment issues and a dislike for the people who raised them. Bittaker was placed in an orphanage, actually, when he was a baby, and by the age of 12, he was already getting into trouble with the law. Norris was abandoned by his parents and was in and out of foster care when he was a kid. The two met while they were serving time in prison in California. Where all great friendships start. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like you like shouldn't be allowed to make friends. Because <laughs> you it's shouldn't like, be allowed friends. It's a little too scary. Bittaker was serving time for stabbing a store clerk in 1974. The clerk accused Bittaker of shoplifting. How dare he? That's how that, you know, yeah. escalated. Roy Norris was in prison on a rape conviction. We're doing great so far, guys. While in prison, the two men bonded over sadism and stories of rape and torture, and they made plans to have some quote-unquote fun when they got out. Gross. And that's why I said you shouldn't be allowed friends. Nope. After they were released, they began a torture killing spree. And that's saying it lightly. Yeah. In February 1979, the duo bought a van with a sliding door, which they called the Murder Mac. Ugh. The sliding door obviously made it easier to get the women into the vehicle. But the fact that they nicknamed their car where they were planning to do what they did is beyond irritating and disgusting to me. They are true losers. They soundproofed the van, added a police radar, locks that could be disabled from the inside. They blacked out its windows and they added a bed. The lengths to which they went. Now, as we mentioned a moment ago, they armed themselves with a toolbox filled with pliers, ice picks, and screwdrivers. Before they set out on their murder spree, just like Ed Kemper, they did test runs. Such a theme. It is. And in these test runs, they picked up women hitchhikers, but they'd let them go. Their first murder victim was 16-year-old Lucinda Cindy Schaefer. In June 1979, she was just walking home when they kidnapped her, strangled her, and then threw her body off of a cliff. Oh my God. A 16-year-old girl. A child. In total, they killed five girls over a five-month period. The other victims were Andrea Hall, Jacqueline Gilliam, Jacqueline Leah Lamp, and Shirley Lynette Ledford all aged between 15 and 18 years old. These girls had their entire lives ahead yeah. of them. Lamp and Gilliam were held and attacked for at least 58 hours before they were murdered. Ooh, unthinkable. Norris and Bittaker were known to film and take photos of their attacks, evidence that would later be used against them at their trials. 
Norris and Bittaker were finally caught after Norris told a friend about what he and Bittaker had done. That quote-unquote friend called the police, thank goodness. Yeah, seriously. On November 20th, 1979, Bittaker and Norris were arrested. Now, to avoid the death penalty, Norris agreed to plead guilty and testify against his partner, which always happens in these cases. Always. I would say nine out of ten times. Scumbags are scumbags forever. And they, they will, will not turn. be loyal. They're going to save their own butt. Mm-hmm. Which, honestly, I'm thankful for. Yeah. But in April of 1981, Norris was sentenced to 45 years to life in prison, to which I say, not enough. Should have been 450. Correct. Even more. Bittaker faced 26 charges, including five counts of murder, five counts of kidnapping, criminal conspiracy, rape, oral copulation, sodomy, and being an ex-felon in possession of a firearm. He was convicted on all counts and sentenced to death. But Bittaker didn't end up getting executed. Instead, he died of natural causes while on death row in San Quentin State Prison on December 13, 2019. He was 79 years old. I hate that he got to live that long. I do too. But I'm also like kind of happy because then he had to think about what he did for that long. But I don't think it bothered him. I know that's actually He's not a good the point. kind of person that it bothered. They're just horrible, horrible monsters. Roy Norris died two months later in prison, also of natural causes. And you'll be mad to hear that he was 72 years old. Oh, that's so weird that they died like so close together. I know they really did. Kind of creepy. I definitely agree with the podcast research gods. That takes number one for sure. Oh, yeah. The Toolbox Killers, definitely. Those two could be numbers 10 through 1 every time. Oh, yeah. I think for things that were left off, but maybe just some of the ones I mentioned in the beginning, Robert Ben Rhodes. Yep. I think you thought of a couple. The Sunset Strip Killers. Yep. Honestly, there could definitely be a part two. Which I is think. sad, but yeah, it really correct. Is. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do, because you made it this far and this was a rough one, yeah. uh, you can follow our other podcast, Morbid. You can listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. And we hope you keep it weird and stay safe until Monday. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. Research by Chelsea Wood. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify.